Good morning again, everybody. It's so good to see you this morning. A little rainy, a little cold, but spring's coming. Uh, hang in there another week or two, and we'll be getting those warmer temperatures, I'm sure. But I hope you had a great week. Hope you're ready to gather around the Word of God this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 2 this morning, primarily. Um, and what I hope is going to be a very timely message for us, very relevant message in regard to where we're at in society today, for sure. I've titled the message Raging Against God. And one of the reasons I did that was because the theme of Psalm 2, at least in one aspect, seems to be all about man's rebellion. Okay, but as we're going to see when we look further into it, we're going to see that Psalm 2 is also focused on the triumphant return of the Messiah and his kingdom. And so even though the world continues to rage on against God, and it most certainly does, Christ the King is going to have the last word. And so that's kind of the theme of Psalm 2. David is the author of Psalm 2, and we don't actually get that information in the Old Testament. We don't get it from this psalm. Uh, we see credit given to David as the author of this psalm by both Peter and John in their prayer over in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. And so if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles with me this morning, I'm going to start there. I'm going to start in actually in Acts 3. We'll talk a little bit about Acts 4, and then we'll get over into Psalm chapter 2. But we want to get some context for our study uh, early here in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and then we'll spend the remainder of the afternoon in Psalm 2. Some of you guys need another cup of coffee. You didn't catch that this morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll try not to be too long-winded. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John have just healed a man, and they did so at the beautiful gate at the temple. Okay, And you can read all about this in the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3. But after they did this, everybody was just filled with wonder, right? They were filled with amazement, the Word of God says in verse 10. And so with everyone gathered around and wondering what in the world had just happened with this healing, Peter took advantage of the opportunity that God gave him, and he preached the gospel to them. That's in verses 11 through 18. Peter actually calls them to repentance, and he calls them to be converted so that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. That's Acts 3, verse 19. I mean, when you go back and look at Peter, he could flat out preach. I mean, Peter was one of those straightforward kind of guys who never pulled any punches. He never held anything back. And so he continues his message all throughout Acts chapter 3. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, Luke tells us this. Luke is also the author of Acts. He tells us that Peter's preaching didn't really sit too well with those uh, temple priests and the Sadducees and so forth. And so what they did was they took Peter and John into custody, actually. And Peter and John had to spend the entire night in the pokey. Okay, remember what we've been talking about in Luke recently, about how discipleship is hard and how the Lord has been preparing them for the road ahead. Now they're on that road, right? Discipleship is very hard at times. But that's okay because there's purpose in their suffering. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we see that many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. So at the end of this sermon, about 5,000 people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, right? Mission accomplished. One night in the slammer is worth 5,000 souls, is it not? 
I would say so. Well, the next day, Peter and John, they come before the rulers of the people there at that time, the elders of Israel, and they had to explain themselves to them as to what power or by what name they had healed this lame man. They wanted the questions to be answered, right? And so guess what happened? Guess what Peter did? Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 4, verse 8, lets him have it again. He starts preaching again. He said, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands before you whole. They're not taking credit for the healing. They're giving all the credit to Christ for healing. That's Acts 4.11. He says there's, there's salvation in no other. In fact, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Acts 4.12. Well, the rulers, the elders, the leaders at that time, they were actually impressed with their boldness uh, and how they were, were preaching and teaching. And they realized that, hey, look, Peter and John had definitely been with Jesus. They realized that. And so in other words, they couldn't deny this miracle that happened right in front of them. I mean, the guy who was once lame at the gate is now standing right there with them in Acts chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Okay, stay with me. We're going somewhere with all of this. All right. Because in Acts chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, it tells us that the rulers feared that the news would spread. And so what they did was they severely threatened Peter and John, and they told them not to speak in the name of Jesus to anyone. Well, guess what Peter and John told them? Basically, they said that ain't happening. <laughs> okay, that's not going to happen. Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. So the rulers, they had no grounds to punish them. So all they did was just threaten them again and then let them go. Acts four twenty one. So Peter and John go back to their buddies and they let them know what happened. This is later on in Acts chapter 4, again, down in verse 23. And here's what happened. And with all, all of them in one accord, after they heard the news of what happened, the Bible says, they raised their voice to God and prayed. Acts 4.24. Listen to what they prayed in verses 25 and 26. Here is where we see the words of David from Psalm chapter 2. Okay, this is included in the disciples' prayer. Here's the prayer. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's a quote from Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. And so these prophetic words here of David from Psalm chapter 2 were actually being fulfilled in the prophetic, or rather apostolic ministry, I should say, of Peter and John. And so what we learn here right away is that you and I, we can trust the word of God, can't we? This prophecy was fulfilled in the lifetime of Peter and John, right? So if the word of God says something, you and I can believe that it will most definitely happen. We can trust God's word. And so I wanted to just give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background here before we jump into Psalm 2. So let's pray again quickly, and then we'll get into Psalm 2. Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning. We are grateful to be gathered around your word. Please speak to us, Lord, through the power of your spirit. Enlighten us to hear your word today, to take it in. Lord, help it to mean something to us. Help us to take something away from this message today that's going to benefit our walk with Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so back to Psalm 2. We'll read it out loud and then we'll talk about it. 
Psalm 2, starting in verse 1, says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So quite a section of scripture here this morning. And I want to give you just a few more nuggets of information about Psalm 2 before we go line by line through the text. And if you're a note taker and you get behind, I apologize. I'm going to give you a ton of information this morning. And I know that might be hard to keep up with, but I'd love to share it with you after the message today. Or you can always go back and listen to the podcast again. But there's a lot here and I, I don't want to uh, sell Psalm 2 short. We're still not going to cover everything, but there's some high points we want to touch on. This is the first messianic book in the book of Psalms. It's only the second Psalm, but it's the first one in regard to the Messiah specifically. It's written in a typical Hebrew poem fashion, you could say, which means this. It means it has four sections that include three verses. That's typical Hebrew poetry, and that's what we see here. And so if you were to outline Psalm 2, Here's a good way that you could do that. You could break this up into those four sections and say verses one through three are all about the sinfulness of man in this poem. Verses four through six are about the wrath of God toward sinful man. Verses seven through nine, we see the solution for our sin. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see the invitation by God to sinful man. This is the drama of the ages. Psalm 2 covers the history of man, basically, right? This is all of history played out in just a few short verses. Man rebels and rages against God. God provides atonement. Some people trust in Christ, but others reject him. And so now we see how God responds to man's sin. And then we see how man responds to God's provision for that sin. It's really a beautiful passage. But those who reject Christ they will suffer a sure and certain wrath of God in due time, according to this psalm. But, however, verse 12, here's the good news. Blessed are those who put their trust in Jesus, right? This psalm is all about Jesus Christ. But if you look at this psalm, you, you can quickly say, man, some things never change, right? I mean, nations are always raging. That's how Psalm 2 starts. Why, why do the nations rage? Well, why is our nation still raging, right? There's wars, there's rumors of wars, and there always will be because you and I, we've been warned about that. Christ told us about that in Matthew 24, 6 and Mark 13, 7. But why the wars? Why all the raging? Why do the nations rage? And I have to say that it's because apart from Christ, there is no peace, right? Apart from Christ, 
You will not find peace. All you will find are what we see listed here. Plotting, scheming, making allies, rebelling against God, right? We see that in the first three verses. Yet God's not phased about this kind of thing. He's still sovereign. Notice that, that he's not even surprised. He's not shocked. He's what? He's seated, verse four. What a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. But he's not going to put up with man's rebellion forever. We see that in verses 5 through 9. But thank God for his love and his mercy. Again, the good news in this passage is that he gives us time to repent. Right? We see it in 2 Peter 3, 9, just as we see it here in Psalm 2. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And so here's what we need to understand this morning, each and every one of us. We need to understand that the time to repent is now. Right? It's, it's now. Because a day of reckoning is most certainly coming. And when Christ comes again, he's going to come in his full glory. Christ will come as the conquering king. He's not going to come in the meekness of a sacrificial lamb. He's already done that, right? He's already done that. And so the penalty for sin has been paid. Our salvation has been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. And blessed are those who put their trust in him, according to verse 12. So again, that's the setting. And, and we also see here that those who refuse to put their trust in Christ, um, they have an unfortunate road ahead. This is what we need to understand, especially from this psalm this morning. When God's wrath is kindled but a little, the word says, verse 12. When his wrath is kindled but a little, it'll be too late. So we don't want to wait for that. We don't want to delay trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation because we don't know when he's coming. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. We've been talking about this kind of stuff in, in Luke. Jesus has been preparing us for this, right? Today the door's open. Tomorrow it might be shut, right? The master's coming. We don't know when, so be on the lookout. This is the idea here too. Trust in the Lord while there's time. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus said, right? So it's time for us, not just as a church, I'm saying us as a society, us as a nation to stop raging against God and surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior before he returns as conquering king. So let's look at this one verse at a time. Psalm chapter two, starting in verse one. Why do the nations rage? Why, or and the people plot a vain thing rather? Well, I like what Spurgeon said here. He said, where there is much rage, there is generally some folly. And in this case, there is an excess of it. No doubt about that. Because the idea right here in verse one is complete rage against God. Okay, not just a little, it's complete rage. And get this, it's not that they just don't believe in God. That's not it. That's not what it says. They hate him. That's a big difference, right? We see this today. You and I live in a world that increasingly hates God. And that's something I've been saying, unfortunately, for years now. And I'll keep saying it until the Lord comes home or something changes. But our world increasingly hates God. So here's a word of warning for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We should not get too comfortable here. Okay, we're just passing through, right? We're just sojourning on our way to heaven. We shouldn't find our comfort in this world. 
That word for nations here refers to the Gentiles in the immediate context, or the heathen, if you will. And then the word people, that would literally refer to Israel or the Jews, like we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. But the idea is that there's people from all the nations around the world, every tribe, every tongue that are raging mad and they're plotting against God. What we see here in this psalm is worldwide rage. Okay, It's a collective plotting. You could say it's a one world effort, right? So the word vain, that word means empty. And so this tells us that whatever it is the world is plotting, whatever that is against the Lord and his anointed is utterly useless. It's hopeless. It's empty. Okay. And so it almost makes this question here that they asked that, that, that David asks, it almost makes it rhetorical at this point, but it actually reveals the utter hopelessness of man's plots against God. They're completely empty. They're vain, right? Think of it like this, just like when they crucified our Lord. Think of it like that. They thought they had him. I mean, they thought they got Jesus. They thought they killed him and got rid of him, right? But what happened? He rose from the dead, right? They didn't defeat him. He defeated them, right? So all of their plots were in vain. But the nations rage on year after year, generation after generation, and people uh, continue with their vain plotting. And so what are we to learn from all of this? Well, I think that we learn that man is completely empty apart from God, My plans are useless apart from God. Okay, so whatever plans that I have for my life, if they don't include him, then they're in vain, right? You say, okay, well, I get that. I mean, I understand that, but what's got everybody so upset, right? Why all the rage? That's a good question. But I think what we see here is basic human nature after the fall, right? The end result is that you and I are against God. We are against him, okay? We are bent towards sin. We're born with a nature that will inevitably sin. And so therefore, we set ourselves against God by nature and by choice. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. So let's define some terms here so we can stay within the context. That word kings, it just means leaders, or overseers, or presidents. It's the high priest that we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. The word for rulers, that means both political rulers and religious rulers. So it could be elders and it could be scribes. In our context, think about Congress. You know, think about the social leaders of our day. Anybody who has influence, okay, that would fit within this context. And then we see the word Lord. It should be all capital letters in your Bible because that is the proper Hebrew name for God. That's Yahweh. That's the tetragrammaton. It's all consonants and no vowels because they didn't want to uh, mispronounce or uh, misspeak in the Lord's name. And so they took out the vowels and just left the consonants, right? So this is the proper Hebrew name for God. And then it says his anointed. So that is the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's the Greek word for Christ. Okay, so this is who we're talking about. These world leaders here, they've taken counsel together and set themselves against God and his Christ. Now, note again here, it's not that these rulers deny the existence of God. No, they hate him. 
That is a huge difference. They set themselves against the Lord and against his Christ. They do it on purpose and they do it in unity. And so we see an example of this in the fulfillment of the very prophecy we just talked about from Acts chapter 4 that we went through at the beginning of the message because Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders, they were all fulfilling this prophecy in real time. Herod and Pilate were the political leaders. The Jews were the religious leaders and so on and so on. So we see all of this coming together in perfect harmony. And we see the fulfillment in Acts uh, 3 and 4 as well. But what about today? What does this have to do with us today, right? Do world leaders still set themselves against God and his Christ? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe they do. How do they do it? Well, in a number of ways uh, that we could take up the rest of the day talking about, but just think about the United Nations as one example. Okay, and I could give you a list of many other organizations, but think about these political leaders and even religious leaders around the world who are working toward this one world governmental system They take counsel together against the Lord. Okay, so that's one way. What about our own political system here in America? How do we, I mean, do we rage against the Lord? Do we set ourselves against God and his Christ? Oh, absolutely. You basically have in America what amounts to a uniparty, right? Where on the one hand, you have a group of people that want to completely remove God, completely, Okay, that's secularism. And on the other hand, you have this group of people who want to play the role of God. Okay, that's nothing more than just paganistic nationalism. Okay, and so we're all fighting for the power that only God possesses. That's what you're seeing happen. All the while we are raging against him. And so when you think about prophecy in scripture, a good way to look at that is with a now and then approach. Okay, it's sort of like being on a mountaintop, standing on a range of mountains where you can see the mountaintops, but you're not sure what the distance is in between the mountains. So there's a now and then approach to prophecy, oftentimes in Scripture. In other words, that's how we can apply it. In other words, aspects of the fulfillment of certain prophecies can be realized at different times. Okay, and I believe that what we see here in Psalm 2 are fulfilled in real time in the work of the apostles that we just read, but I also think that they speak to the last days. Okay, I think we can see that. The days that you and I are currently living in, that's my opinion, right? I think we are living in the last days. Spurgeon said this, the terrible conflicts of the last days will illustrate both the world's love of sin and Jehovah's power to give the kingdom to his begotten. To a graceless neck, The yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to a saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? Good word, right? So which camp am I in? That's what I need to ask myself. Have I received the yoke of Christ, the one that is easy and light, or do I continue to rage against him? Look at verse 3, because we get an answer from the God-haters. This is where they're at. This is what camp they're in. Let us break their bonds. That should be a capital T in the word there. Talking about God and his Christ. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And so rebellious sinners here who are raging against God, what they do is they feel trapped. They feel bound up by God's word, right? 
The bonds and cords here represent something that hold you down. So many people think that the word of God just binds them up and holds them down and keeps them from real freedom. It keeps them under control. They just want to be free from God's control and do whatever they please. I really believe that the number one reason why people don't come to Christ is that they don't want to submit to his authority. They just want to do as they please, right? We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anybody telling us how to live our lives. So the bottom line is that people want to be their own God. That's the bottom line. Remember the garden? Remember what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5? Satan told Eve that she would be like God if she ate the fruit. Satan himself wanted to be like God. We see that in Isaiah 14, 14. And check this out. As a result of Satan wanting to be like God, okay, not only has he fallen, but he has weakened the nations, according to Isaiah 14, 12. And that's very interesting. And now what do the nations do? They rage. The nations rage. You see, what started out as this simple quest to just be like God in the garden has turned into full-blown rage against him throughout the generations. Those who hate God look at his boundaries as cords that bind them, right? And these are all things that restrict their freedom. What are some of those things? We see them all over the place, and we could name several, but what about marriage? When you think of marriage, right? That's God's idea. God invented that. Right? And he said it's between one man and one woman for life. That's what marriage is. But that's too restricting for the world. Right? That's a cord that binds them. What about the Ten Commandments? Oh, we can't have those hanging in the courthouses. We can't have those in the schools anymore. Those are too restricting. Right? We need to get those out of the public square. We can't have God telling us how to live our lives. Right, Guys, rage is an act of rebellion. That's all that it is, okay? But believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that God has put these boundaries in place for our benefit, okay? They're for our benefit and they're for our welfare. He's put these boundaries in place to protect us and to provide a healthy society around us. And ultimately, why they're there is to drive us to Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate reason they're there, so that we can be truly set free, from our sin, right? But rebel-hearted humanity continues to just shake its little rebel fist in the face of God while the world around us continues to spiral down into complete and utter destruction in its own rage, right? Here's what the world is longing for. The world wants Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the world wants to go back to. And we're headed that way, right? At breakneck speed, by the way. But God, all the while, is longing to save us from our sin. Here's what's even sadder, okay? We're not even willing to admit that we're hopeless. We're not willing to admit that we need saving and we can't save ourselves, right? We're too prideful to seek help from God. I mean, we give priority to the very thing that should be restrained, and that, of course, is our flesh. We give priority to our flesh, and that's what needs to be restrained, Right? We really, what we really need is to be rescued by the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so here's the deal. If we want real freedom, true freedom, 
then we need to come to Christ and be set free from our sin. Because if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's John 8, 36, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold him in, or hold them rather, in derision. I like what Thomas Adams said. He was considered to be the Shakespeare of the Puritans. He said, short is the joy of the wicked. Man, isn't that the truth? Right, But still, yet yeah, people would rather have just a few short years of sin than an eternity with God. Man, how backwards is our thinking? Those who refuse to repent in this life will one day find out just how short their joy in this life truly was. The Word of God says that God will laugh. Think about that. Now, to be clear, laugh here does not mean humor. Okay, God is not tickled by our sin. He's not fascinated or laughing in that way by our sin. This is a scornful laugh, okay? And it's in response to the wicked and all of their plotting. And so to hold them in derision means that he will ridicule or mock them, right? So those who choose today to mock or scorn or ridicule God in this life will one day find themselves being mocked, scorned, and ridiculed by God. That's the truth. The word of God is telling us something very important. It's telling us that God will be the one who gets the last laugh, right? I want you to notice, too, where God is. He sits, verse 4, on his throne. God does not even need to stand against our rebellion. Isn't that amazing? He sits in complete authority at all times, right? He is always under control. God is never shaken. He's never uh, surprised, God doesn't panic. He's not up in heaven pacing. He remains seated in sovereign control and complete authority over his creation at all times, at all times. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, let's look at this from God's point of view. Little man down here parading up and down, shaking his little midget fist in heaven's face and saying, come on out and fight me. I'm against you, but God looks down at this puny creature and it's utterly preposterous. He says it's so ridiculous that he looks down and laughs. Little men putting themselves in opposition to God won't be around very long. And then he gives a couple of examples of this that we see from history. Think about Mussolini. Remember him in your history books? The Italian prime minister, fascist, 1920s. He did a lot of talking, but he's gone now, and we haven't heard much from him lately, have we? He references Stalin, of course, the uh, Russian dictator. He was a communist in the 30s. He did the same thing, but now he's gone. J. Vernon, uh, Vernon McGee says that little man plays his brief role here on the stage of life, and then his part is over. How ridiculous and how preposterous for him to oppose God. Amen. It's ridiculous on its face, but that's exactly what we do. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And so one of these days, the comforting words of Christ and reconciliation and all of these things are going to give way to the wrath of God. Okay, I hope you know that the day and time that you and I are living in is an age of grace. We are living in an age of grace right now. What a blessing it is. However, he's already told us back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, that his spirit will not strive with man forever, right? He's not going to continue to fight against us. There's going to come a day, guys, when 
People are literally going to be begging for the rocks to fall on them rather than to face the wrath of God in judgment. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, talking about everybody who has ever opposed Christ, no matter their stage of life, no matter their social status, anybody who has rejected Christ, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Wow. Guys, please hear this this morning. Hear what the word of God is saying. Just as God spoke the world into existence, he will one day speak his wrath onto those who have rejected him. We've been warned about this. God's not going to stand up and shout. He's not going to poke his finger at us in displeasure. No, he'll merely sit and speak, and it'll be done. It'll be done. No one's going to stand against the wrath of God. Verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Amen. This is where we see the light coming in, in this psalm. This is where the good news begins. Here's where we see Jesus Christ coming to our rescue. Praise God, there's hope for us. Now David here, as he's speaking of the second coming of Christ, all right? When Jesus will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. One day God's king will rule all of the other kings of the earth and he will do it from Zion. Zion, of course, is the city of David, right? This is where Christ celebrated the Last Supper. This is where the temple was built in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 10. Mount Zion is holy, and it's holy because this was the place of the temple. And so the true king will one day reign from his holy hill. It's his hill to reign from, right? Guys, there's never been a king, nor will there ever be a king like King Jesus. And I want you to notice the past tense here. This is spoken of in the past tense. The king of kings is already in place. Did you see that? God's already set him in place, okay, which is to mean in a place of authority, okay? So it's not only been decreed, it's been done. This thing has been done. So the truth is, those who oppose God today, well, they're actually fighting a losing battle. It's completely a losing battle. I mean, you can't prevent something that God has already done. And so here's what we're learning, okay? Here's what we need to get, the victory has already been won. The victory has been won. The king is in place. King Jesus is in place and he will rule and he will reign. Why? Because he is ruling and he is reigning. And so here's the application for you and me. Here's what we take from this. Would I rather Christ rule in me today by his spirit or rule over me one day by his power? Right? I mean, I can either submit to his authority now or I can be submitted to it later. What I'm talking about is grace today or wrath tomorrow. Which would we rather have? Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now you and I know from the teachings of Scripture that Jesus was not created, right? Right? So that's not what this verse is saying. 
We know that he was there in the beginning, according to John 1. However, there are cults out there like the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who will use this verse to claim that Jesus was created at his birth. Okay, and that's not true. Christ is eternal. The scriptures teach us about the eternal sonship of Christ. And so what does this word begotten actually mean? Well, most commonly it means to bring forth. Okay, so again, Jesus wasn't created. He was brought forth right, into creation. However, here in verse 7, it's very interesting because this word begotten also means risen from the dead. Now, how do we know this? You guys check me on this, right? Let's be good Bereans and make sure that what we say lines up with the scriptures. The reason we know that this means risen from the dead is because Paul gives us an explanation of this psalm in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 33. Here's what he said. And we declare to you glad tidings. Here's some good news, Paul said. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for their children. Listen to this. In that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Paul's still talking. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Amen. So God has begotten Christ. He has raised Christ from the dead, never to die again, according to Acts 13, 34, right? So guys, the prophecy of Jesus Christ is all throughout this psalm here, right? In fact, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy, according to Revelation 19, 10. So some people might ask you, well, is the resurrection of Christ ever prophesied about in the Old Testament? And of course, you can say, absolutely it is. We just read it. Of course it is. And not only does this, does this psalm here prophesy to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it also declares his kingship over the entire world, verse 6. It declares his priesthood before the Father, verse 7. And so the clear teaching from Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the prophet, priest, and king. Right? He's the greatest prophet. He's the king of kings. And he is uh, the great high priest. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, of course, God has every right to do this, right? I mean, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. It's his holy hill. Everything is his. He created it. Psalm 24, verse 1. And so the, re the reality here is this. The Lord inherits what he establishes, Okay. That's important to understand. The creator of the universe will one day reclaim his creation for his own inheritance. Okay, so let's be clear that we understand what David is saying, because this verse here is often misquoted. It's often misunderstood. You'll hear this verse quoted on mission trips. You'll hear it quoted by missionaries a lot. And, you know, Lord bless them, but they're taking it out of context when they do that. Okay, this verse is not about missions, all right? It's not saying that God will give the nations to us. No, what did it say? It says that the Father will give the nations to the Son and that he will rule over them from his throne in Jerusalem quite literally. Guys, we live on God's planet, right? He created it. He keeps it. He has redeemed it. And one day he will return to reclaim it. That's important that we understand that. Verse 9. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Man, just look at the imagery here. Okay, there's no more sacrificial lamb. There's no more suffering servant. At this point, we see the Lion of Judah. How do we know this? Again, let's go to the scriptures, right? Let's look at a few scriptures. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 10 says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. That word means offspring. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Listen to this. Until Shiloh comes. Capital S. That's Jesus. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Amen. Guys, every single one of us are going to submit to Christ. It doesn't matter who we are. Right? Listen to a few more scriptures. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Revelation 5.5 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And so here's what I'm saying. Here's what the scriptures are saying. Here's the teaching. Christ is both the root and the offspring of David. Revelation 22.16. So what does that mean? Well, that signifies the humanity and the deity of Christ. Okay, he's the offspring of David. That means that Christ came through the line of David, right? There's the humanity. He's the root of David, which means that Christ was creator and therefore before David. There's the deity, right? And so why in the world is all of this important to you? Why is all of this important to me? Because right here, in this verse, in Psalm 2, verse 9, we see that Christ will conquer his enemies. He will conquer them. The word says that he will break them with a rod and dash them to pieces. Guys, when Christ comes to reclaim his creation, it's not going to be pretty. It won't be. Okay, at least not for those who are still under the wrath of God. It'll be absolute destruction. I want you to notice something. His rod is made of iron. That signifies major destruction. In other words, he will break what he hits. Okay, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's Philippians 2, 9 through 11. In other words, there's not going to be anyone who stands up and speaks against God. Nobody. Not on judgment day. Whatever the Lord strikes, it will shatter like a clay pot. He will conquer his enemies. We're not going to have time to cover this this morning, but I would highly encourage you to go do a study in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 10, and compare that to our passage in our study this morning. I think you'll get a lot out of that if you do. So, so please go to Jeremiah 18 for a further study. But here's the deal. The nations of the world are just like clay pots in the potter's hand, Okay. They're easily plucked up and they're easily pulled down unless they repent, which you will read all about in, in Jeremiah 18, 8, when you do your study there. But here's the point. When Christ returns, he will set all things right. Okay, And so the world has been warned, right? 
But as you're going to find when you get in Jeremiah 18, and then again, all throughout scripture, we see this over and over, but you're going to find out that God is gracious. God is absolutely gracious. All throughout history, he's given humanity time to repent, right? And he'll relent. He will relent from the disaster that he plans to bring and the destruction that he plans to bring on the people if, that's the contingency, if the people repent, okay? However, what we see here in Psalm 2 is a different point in history. We see down the road to a point in history where Jesus is already on the scene and everybody has already had their opportunity to repent. And so it'll be too late. Verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Right. And so, in other words, while there's still time, while you're reading this passage, while you still have breath in your lungs, Turn to the Lord by faith and be saved and begin to serve him. Be wise. Turn from your foolish rebellion. God is gracious and he's giving us ample time to, re- to repent. Of course, we don't understand or know how much time. But the important thing is we have time today. You have time right now to turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. So let me ask you a question. What effect do you think it would have on the world, the world that we live in today, if we were to see presidents and leaders, prime ministers and dictators from all around the world, from every nation around the world, begin to come out and say, you know what? I need to tell the world something. I need to tell my country and the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. I need to tell the world that I've turned from my sin and I've trusted in Christ alone for my salvation. What do you think would happen? What would be the result of that? Think about it like this. What if the most liberal court in all of America, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out in California, if every single one of them got on a camera this afternoon and said that Jesus Christ is Lord and only he can save? Man, what effect do you think that would have on our nation? What if political leaders in our country were genuinely being saved from the president on down? And I hope you're praying for that. Pray for them. And after they got saved, they begin to proclaim that to the entire world. Do you think that would have an impact on our country? Do you think that there's a chance that possibly revival would take the place of rage in our country? It could happen. You see, God speaks directly to kings. He speaks directly to rulers and judges. Why? It's because of their great influence that they have over people. The word says, oh, kings and judges, be instructed. So God is saying, I'm talking to you, right? Now, this could serve um, as instruction for everyone who finds themselves in leadership, okay, at some level. If you're a leader and God has given you influence over people, then this would apply to your context as well. He's saying, look, don't waste your platform on anything else, right? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So kings and judges, presidents, politicians, governors, mayors, fathers, pastors, leaders, take note. The God of the Bible is to be served with fear. We see this time and time again in Scripture. Um, And so we got to be careful that we don't minimize that word fear. Right? Let's let Scripture stand. Serve the Lord with fear. Okay? Um, we need to be careful that we don't take that out of context. Now, 
God uh, is, is in control. Of course he is. Okay, but we have to understand that our service to him should be done in the kind of reverence, if you will, that resembles fear. Okay, because the truth is, is we're not going to be able to stand against God in judgment whatsoever. Uh, so we got to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he says that at that point, he will lift us up. That's James chapter 4, verse 10. And so serve him with fear. But if you notice something here in the second half of this verse, it also says rejoice with trembling. Now, that's interesting to me. Rejoice with trembling. William Bates, who was a Presbyterian pastor back in the day, he said that fear qualifies our joy. The fear of God qualifies our joy. And so if you abstract fear from joy, then joy will become too light. And if you extract, extract joy from fear, then fear will become slavish. And so we see this balance that the scripture strikes here. A healthy fear of God today will result in rejoicing in our time of judgment, right? So rejoice with trembling. Um, what a great model that is for worship. I don't know when the last time it was that you trembled before God. Um, that's between you and the Lord. But I want you to think about that. When was the last time I trembled before the Lord? Guys, our desire to be redeemed and spared from the wrath of God should make us tremble. And the sheer joy utter joy of knowing that the God of the universe loves me so much that he would provide forgiveness through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That should also make me tremble. Man, what a God we serve. What a savior. We're to serve him and we are to rejoice in him and we are to do both of those things with a healthy dose of fear. Verse 12, we're almost done. Verse 12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now that phrase, kiss the sun here, literally means give pure worship to the sun. Okay, one of J. Vernon McGee's professors in seminary was a guy by the name of Dr. George Gill. And he said that the, this is the Old Testament's way of saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Just like we see in Acts 16.31. But what this does to me is it reminds me of Proverbs chapter 14, 12, that says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, right? And so here's the reality. Guys, you and I are already on that way that leads to death. Okay, we don't have to do anything to get there. We are there. That's where we are. And so David is saying, look, y'all, you're going to perish if you stay there. Okay? So God through his word and through his prophet David is saying to us, kiss the son and live. In other words, you don't have to stay on that path. There's a better option, right? There's one that leads to life. Just like we see in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. That's what Jesus said. And so this verse is saying, blessed are those who put their trust in Jesus Right? So we need to get off this path that leads to death and get on the path that leads to life, which, of course, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, we've only seen a small picture of what God's wrath is going to look like when it's kindled but a little, the Word of God says. Can you imagine what it's going to look like in full flame? 
Imagine that. Can you imagine the wrath of God at its peak? Let me give you another way to think about this. Let me give you another way to think about the wrath of God. Think of it like this. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. That is what the full fury of God's wrath toward our sin looks like. Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of the Father toward our sin. How amazing is that? Do you believe that? You see, Christ is our propitiation. That's just a 10 cent word that means satisfaction. It means appeasement. Okay, we see that in 1 John 2 too. And so here's the beauty. Guys, here's the benefit for you and me. This means that God's, God's wrath, his holy wrath toward your sin and toward mine has been satisfied by the punishment and torture that was put upon Jesus Christ on our behalf. Praise the Lord. So please don't stay on that path that leads to destruction. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. That's what this psalm is saying, right? Kiss the son and live. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and live. Why do the nations rage? Why do people continue raging against God? Well, it's because their soul will never, ever find peace until it finds its peace in God through a relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so, in closing, let me just say this. If you know you're not saved, right? If you know that you don't have a relationship with Christ, stop raging against God. Stop the rebellion. Repent of your sins and let your soul be settled by the peace of Jesus Christ. He absorbed the wrath of the Father for you and for me. He took your sins on the cross so that you wouldn't have to stand the wrath of God. If you're a believer, if you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but you're not truly living for Christ, we've been talking about the cost of discipleship and, and things like that lately. Well, then what we have to do is repent as well. If we know that we're not living in a way that pleases God, then we need to repent and begin walking in true fellowship with God because that's another form of rage. That's another form of rebellion, right? We may have a relationship with the Lord, by grace through faith, but maybe we're not walking with the Lord. In either case, repentance is the key, right? Turn from that sin and turn back to Christ and restore that relationship and that fellowship with the Father through Christ. Rage is a result of our rebellion. That's why we rage. But I'm here to tell you, revival will come through repentance. Did you know that the Asbury Revival that as far as I can tell is still going. More than 50,000 people have attended and it's probably even higher than that. Did you know that that revival started when young, one young man stood up and repented? One young man stood up and turned from his sin and turned to Christ by faith and revival happened, right? So we have to stop raging against God, turn from our sin so that times of refreshing may come, the word says through our repentance. And I'll end with these words from Pastor Steve Lawson, who said this, the end of the age is approaching. The devil is prowling. 
the world is raging and Jesus is coming. The judgment is approaching and the gospel is calling. Amen. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for calling all of us by your grace and through your sacrifice to come to the Savior in repentance and faith and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching that we see. Thank you, Lord, for giving us time to repent. We know that you're coming again. We know that you're coming as the conquering king. We know that you will set all things right and that no one will stand against the wrath of God. And so you call us to humility and repentance and faith today. You call us to surrender to you now before your wrath is brought on this world. And so I pray, Lord, that if anybody hears this message and this calling, this gospel call, that they would respond to it in faith, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave so that they might have eternal life. I pray that they would believe that and turn from their sin in repentance and be saved. And for any believers who may be struggling, which of course we all do, but if there are believers out there struggling in their walk, I pray that today that would change too. I pray that they would surrender every area of their life to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, what I'm praying for is revival. I'm praying that you would send revival, even to community church. Lord, I pray that the revival you've already started will continue to grow and that it will reach here. I pray that you would start in my heart, that you would bring revival to my own heart, that there would be nothing that I'm holding back for myself, but that every part of me is sold out for the cause of Christ and for your glory. No turning back. We know that our time is limited. So help us, Lord, to be the kind of ambassadors for Christ, the kind of disciples that you call us to be until you come. Would you give us the grace, give us the strength and the guidance and the ability to do that, Lord? For we ask this in faith and we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.